0: It's now around 3 a.m. on July 1st, 1981, just two days after the Nash robbery, an unknown number of unidentified men entered the Wonderland Avenue townhouse and bludgeoned to death Clonius, Deverell, Miller, and Barbara Richardson, Lynn's girlfriend who had been visiting. But where was Lynn? The weapons used by the killers were believed to be a combination of hammers and metal pipes. Richardson's bloodied body was found on the living room floor beside the couch where she had been sleeping that night. Miller, the lease owner of the home, was found on her bed with her boyfriend, Deverell, at the foot of the bed in an upright position, leaning against the TV stand. A hammer was found on that bed. Lanius was found beaten to death on his bed with his gravely injured wife, Susan, beside him on the floor. Both bedrooms had been thoroughly searched and ransacked. Despite suffering severe brain damage in the attic, Susan ultimately survived and recovered. Although she was left with permanent amnesia regarding the night of her attack, and had to have part of her skull surgically removed, and lost a part of one finger. Neither Lind nor McCourt were present during the attack. Lind, well, while his girlfriend was dying at Wonderland Avenue, Lind was consuming drugs with a prostitute in a motel, and McCourt was at his own home. Although neighbors would later report having heard loud screams around 3 a.m., no phone calls were placed to the police until after 4 p.m. on July 1st, over 12 hours later when furniture movers working at the house next door to the crime scene heard Susan moaning and went to investigate. The house was, I mean, it was a party house. It was notorious for round-the-clock mayhem and debauchery, and when questioned, neighbors said the Wonderland gang's drug-fueled parties often included loud, violent screaming and disruptive noises. So when they heard the murders occurring, they simply thought another party was taking place. The next day, on Thursday, July 2nd, at 3.30 a.m., after running to his estranged wife Sharon's house and banging on her door, she switched on the porch light, spied through the peephole, and saw that scrawny, familiar little face. She hadn't seen him in over three months. His clothes were ripped, and he was bloody from head to toe. He stared straight ahead. Unblinking. She opened the door, folded her arms against her chest. What are you doing here? Can I come in? he asked. They went to the bathroom, and Sharon, who we know is a registered nurse, rummaged through a well stocked medicine cabinet, brought out iodine and cotton swabs. She reached up and took John's chin in her hand, turned his head side to side. Funny. No cuts, no abrasions, just blood. Did you have an accident in the Malibu? John looked down at Sharon, his eyes blinked rapidly. By now they'd been married for 16 years, and Sharon always knew when he was lying. That's probably why he always came back. Run me a bath, will you? He said. As John eased into the tub, Sharon sat on the wood-covered commode. What now? She thought. He dunked his head, put a steaming washcloth over his face. And then he set up the murders, he said. I was there. What do you mean you were there, John? Uh, it, 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 it was my fault. I, I, I stood there and, and watched them kill those people. What are you talking about? I, w- I was involved in a robbery, John began. And he told her the whole story, the setup, the robbery. Nash's threat to kill his whole family, Sharon included. So I, I told him everything, John said. I I told where the robbers lived and how to get there. I, I had to take him there. And I did. I did take them there. There was a, a security system at the house, and I called up and said I had some things for the people inside and to let me up. They trusted me. They opened the security gate and the four of us went up the stairs and when the door opened, they forced their way inside. Someone, someone held a gun to my head and, and I stood there against the wall and I watched them beat them to death. It, it was them or me. And they were so stupid. They made him beg for his life. They deserved what they got. After showering at Sharon's, Holmes went to where Jenna was staying, to some motel in the valley. He walked through the door, flopped on the bed, and passed out. Hours passed, and when John woke, Jenna, his teenage mistress, said nothing. They made a run at McDonald's for burgers, and they came back and watched more TV. Then came the late night news. At this time, the cops were calling it the Four on the Floor Murders. Dad were Miller, Billy Deverell, Ron Lanius, Barbara Richardson, the Wonderland Gang. The murder weapon was a steel pipe with threading at the ends, thread marks found on walls, skulls, skin, house tossed by assailants. Blood and brains splattered everywhere, even on the ceilings. Bodies were discovered by workmen next door. They'd heard faint cries from the back of the house. Help me. Help me. A fifth victim was carried out alive, Susan Lannis, 25, Ron Lannis' wife. She was currently in intensive care with a severed finger and brain damage. The murders were so brutal that police were comparing the case to the Tate-LaBianca murders by the Manson family. Holmes and Gianna watched from the bed. Afraid to look at John, she peeked over at him slowly, catching his profile. He was frozen. The color drained from his face, and she actually saw it. First his forehead, then his cheeks, then his neck. He went white. LAPD detectives Tom Lange and Robert Souza led the murder investigation and searched Nash's home a few days after the crime. There, they found more than $1 million worth of cocaine, as well as some items stolen from the Wonderland house. An initial theory of the murder centered around Holmes after his left palm print was found at the crime scene on Lanius's headboard. 12 days after the murder on July 10th, police knocked down the door of their motel room and arrested Gianna and Holmes. For the next three days, John, Gianna, and Sharon were held in protective custody down in a luxury hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Armed guards were in the lobby and in the hallway. John tried to make a deal with cops. He wanted witness protection, a new name, money, a home. He wanted new names for Sharon and Gianna too. And Just like an informant, he offered the police secrets. Names of mobsters, drug dealers, prostitutes, pimps. The police wanted to know who killed the Wonderland King. Holmes wouldn't tell. With Holmes, it was like he was a center stage and the lights and the camera were on, says the detective who was present. It was like he was doing a movie. Here he is, yes. Two women with him, all three of them sleeping in the same bed. He stroked us jacked us around. He told us certain things, things that were on the right track, and that this indeed what had happened, that this was the motivation, and that this was how I came down. He played for it for all it was worth. Then he said he wouldn't testify. So we cut him fucking loose. The three went back to Sharon's house. Sharon cooked dinner. John picked up Sharon's two dogs and Thor from the kennel. Later, the women dyed John's hair black. John and Gianna painted the Malibu gray with a red top. They used cans of spray paint, too. The finish was drippy and streaked, but it didn't matter. They were on the run. Now it was December 4th, 1981. After leaving California, Gianna and John had gone to Vegas. Then Montana then headed south, visiting the Grand Canyon, the Painted Desert. Holmes broke into cars along the way until they ended up in Miami. Gianna hadn't seen John in over two weeks after he had publicly beaten her. The cops... We're definitely looking for him now. Following his arrest in Miami, Holmes was tried for the murder of the Wonderland gang. His defense was simple. John Holmes was the sixth victim of the Wonderland murders. And Eddie Nash was evil incarnate. His lawyer told the jury at the outset, Unlike some mysteries, this is not going to be a question of who done it. This is going to be a question of why aren't the perpetrators here? In the end, the most damaging evidence the prosecution could produce was a palm print on a headboard above one of the victims. Holmes refused to testify. Because of this, the jury found him innocent. Holmes remained in jail and would spend 110 days in jail, however, on his outstanding burglary case. While awaiting that trial, he was ordered by a judge to tell the grand jury what he knew about the Wonderland murders, and because he'd already been tried, Holmes would not be able to invoke the Fifth Amendment. According to the law, he had to talk. He refused anyway. He'd underestimated Nash once but he'd never do it again. Nash would kill him and his family if he talked. He was certain of it. He was held in the county jail for contempt. And whilst in jail, Holmes went on a hunger strike. Two weeks later though it was reported that he'd only lost seven pounds. Jailers said other inmates were giving him candy bars and later it was reported that John Holmes had interrupted his fast, ate a meal, then continued his fast. Great willpower, John. Finally, on the afternoon of November 22, 1982, Holmes relented and testified. He'd been in jail 11 months in all, 110 days on the contempt charge. His attorney told reporters that he'd changed his mind because of certain arrangements that had been made and certain circumstances that had arisen. What he may have been referring to was the imprisonment that that very same morning of Eddie Nash on charges of dealing drugs. So now they were in there together. Just after the murders, the coke totally hit the fan and it snowed fucking everywhere. They they literally could have built snowman with how much blow was all over the place. Because Nash and Dials had found themselves in a world of fucking shit. Nash's home was raided three times each time drugs, money, and weapons were seized. And each time nash made bail then nash was arrested with three others on federal charges of racketeering arson and mail fraud his three co-conspirators in the insurance scam were found guilty nash was acquitted in the end both Dials and nash went to jail Dials got seven years on charges stemming from the drug raids nash was found guilty of possessing two pounds of cocaine for sale at trial his lawyer argued that the one million dollars worth of coke was not for dealing it was strictly for personal use. During recesses in the trial, God, listen to this. During recesses in the trial, Nash would go out to his car and smoke freebase. Then he'd swallow a few quaaludes and return. His lawyer hired a young associate to stick Nash with a pin whenever he nodded off in court. The judge in the case was Everett E. Ricks Jr. and it was obvious from his comments that Ricks, a hardliner, Considered Eddie Nash a fucking plague. Ricks even came in from his sick bed to sentence Nash, coughing into the microphone. Ricks called Nash a danger to the public and maxed him out. Eight years in prison and a hundred and twenty thousand three hundred and fifty dollar fine. Two years later, though, Ricks ended up reducing Nash's sentence time to Nash's sentence to time served, and Nash was released. Ricks cited Nash's need for delicate surgery to remove a sinus tumor. I wouldn't want to be operated on in San Quentin prison, Rick said sympathetically. Two years later, Ricks was ordered and held against his will for psychiatric observation. Oh yeah, the 52-year-old former jurist had been arrested after he allegedly punched his 82-year-old mother and threatened to kill someone if she didn't give him keys to a car. After his release, Nash told a friend that jail had saved his life. He moved to a modest condo in Tarzana and set about rebuilding, taking college business courses at night. Apparently, drugs, inattention, back taxes, and lawyer fees had depleted his once $30 million fortune. Meanwhile, our buddy Holmes, well, Holmes had gone back to making adult films. When he got out of jail, Holmes was jubilant. He greeted reporters, had dinner with with his lawyer, and then called Sharon, who swiftly told him to get the fuck out of my life. He couldn't call Gianna. She was nowhere to be found. Holmes had nothing to do and nowhere to go. His lawyer lent him a Volkswagen Beetle and $100, and Holmes showed up at his friend Emerson's house. While Holmes was in jail, Emerson had started a company called John Holmes Production, J.H.P. He was marketing Holmes's old films on video. Like all porn actors, John had been paid per day and had signed away the right to his own films. His old friend was happy to pick them up. Let's face it, Emerson said. John was a product. I marketed him. That's what it was all about. It's business. Like I said before, John really knew how to pick his friends, didn't he? With all the publicity from the murders, John Holmes had achieved almost mainstream celebrity. The video boom was just beginning and Holmes became a kind of Marlon Brando of porn. No longer the leading man, he was now the featured oddity. In California Valley Girls, for instance, He only had one scene. He came in, sat on a couch. A girl entered stage right, then another girl, and another. At the end, there were six at once working on his peener. Early in 1983, at age 39, Holmes was shooting Flesh Pond at a studio in San Francisco. One of the actresses in the cast was Lori Rose. Lori was 19. Remember, he's 39 and she's 19. She came from a small town outside Vegas. In the business, she was billed as Misty Dawn, the anal queen of porn. After the film, John and Lori, who looked like Gianna, began dating. Usually, they smoked freebase and had sex. In time, John and Lori moved in together at Amerson's. When Amerson raised their rent to $400, shockingly expensive, I know. They got their own place in Encino. John continued to make films, but he made Lori stop. He thought one person in the family was enough, his then-girlfriend said. And the AIDS thing was just starting to come out. Nobody had gotten it yet, but it was still in the back of our minds. And John thought, well, if we're going to take a chance, I'm going to take that chance. And that's enough. Well, our hero. And apparently, after a while, he stopped smoking freebase. And he made good on his promise and stopped doing drugs altogether. Nobody ever came over, said Lori. Nobody ever knew where we lived. His words to me were, friends can get you killed and we were very careful. Then when Eddie Nash got out of jail, John was very, very worried. We went on 24-hour watch for like three weeks. One of us had to be awake at all times. It was like being in a movie or something. Then in the summer of 1985, John tested positive for AIDS. Lori, his wife, said after hearing his results, he was laughing about it. John said he felt like he was chosen to get AIDS because of who he was and how he lived. He felt like he was an example. Unfortunately, John continued making films even after his diagnosis. His last film was The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empress, starring Ilona Ciccolina Stoller, a member of the Italian Parliament. By the time it was released in 1987, Holmes's health had already begun to decline. The word in the industry was that he had colon cancer, and Holmes was telling people that doctors had removed 16 feet of his large intestine, In truth, Holmes was operated on for hemorrhoids. Around that time, he also began developing complications related to AIDS. And Emerson, his buddy, meanwhile, accused John of embezzling $200,000 from the company. So he cut Holmes off, canceled his insurance. Lori goes to say, John was really sick by this point. We moved around a lot because the rent kept going up. I was working as a computer programmer and John would just stay home. He was in so much pain. You couldn't touch him. He couldn't walk. His legs and feet would swell up. His ears would bleed. He had infections in his lungs. His surgery wouldn't heal up either. He was very upset about the business. He'd made all these people millions and millions of dollars. And we were seriously broke. He would call people and they'd say, we'll help you out. But we'd never get the money that was promised. So let's fast forward to 1988. On January 24th, 1988, John and Lori were married in the little chapel of the Flowers in Las Vegas. It was a simple ceremony. The bride wore white in February, seven years after the murders, in a sunny room in the Veteran Administration Hospital in Sepulveda, California, weighing roughly 90 pounds, fingernails about two inches long. John was dying of AIDS. Holmes was now fully committed in the VA hospital, and soon after detectives Lange and McLean called the hospital. They wanted to see Holmes. After seven years, the district attorney was reopening the Wonderland case, based in part on testimony from Scott Thorson, Liberace's ex-lover, Thorson, who was waiting to be sentenced on a drug-related armed robbery, had sought a deal with police. He was prepared to testify that Eddie Nash had sent Holmes and Dials to Wonderland Avenue, and that Nash felt responsible for the bloody mess that resulted. Now, the police wanted Holmes's testimony. Sadly, John Holmes died on March 13, 1988. He didn't want a funeral, but his ashes were scattered over the ocean. And six months later, on September eighth, nineteen eighty eight, Diles and Nash were charged with the murders on Wonderland Avenue, after preliminary hearing in january nineteen eighty nine, at which Thorson, among others, testified. So that is the end of the Wonderland murders. So sex and death are a are a rec are a recabl oh my god, I can't fucking say it. Sex and death are reckably linked, right? Like, so many murders are linked to sex and, and the need for sexual release, and nowhere are the two more intimately entwined than in the San Fernando Valley's adult movie industry. While the porn business dedicates itself to churning out explicit movies that capture the unspoken fantasies of its viewers, it's also a hardcore racket that's not without its shocking headline-grabbing stories featuring homicides, suicides, and mysterious deaths from porn star John Holmes all the way to start porn starlet Savannah Suicide at 23. And like I said on the last episode and the first half of this one, actor John Holmes was best known for being spectacularly well-endowed, but he earned another more frightening reputation as a possible killer when he was, you know, involved in what became known as the Wonderland Murders. Linda Lovelace, born... Linda Susan Borman became a household name when her starring role in Deep Throat helped kick off the porno chic revolution in the 70s. Lovelace would later state that her husband Chuck Trainer, who she claimed was violent and abusive, became her pimp and forced her at gunpoint to perform in in adult videos. In later years, she ended up joining the anti-porn movement and testified before the Mies Commission, stating, when you see the movie Deep Throat, you are watching me get raped. On April 3, 2002, Lovelace was seriously injured in a car accident and fell into a coma. She was taken offline support and died several weeks later at age 53. If you haven't seen this movie, the movie is called Lovelace, and Amanda Seyfried played Lovelace in the movie, which is kind of funny because Lindsay Lohan, her old co-star on Mean Girls, was set to play Lovelace in the 2013 film. Stephen Hill, a sometimes male porn star who used the stage name Steve Driver, killed another sometimes male porn star, Herbert Wong, who used the stage name Tom Dung. Hill's weapon of choice? A movie prop samurai sword. Two others were injured in the attack at an adult production company in the Valley, and Hill, who was wanted for murder, turned up a steep cliff, where he was then approached by LAPD officers and crisis negotiators who attempted to talk him down. With dusk approaching, SWAT team members attempted to subdue Hill with a less-than-lethal weapon. Hill then fell to his death some 50 feet below. Eighteen years ago, Shannon Michelle Wilsey, who performed in adult movies as Savannah, shot herself in the head after a long night of partying. In the early hours of July 11, 1994, Wilsey was returning to her home when she got in a minor car accident. Upset and under the influence, the star of Blonde Forces and Happy Endings killed herself in her home with a 9mm handgun. Her life story then became the subject of e-true Hollywood story, Savannah. Chloe Jones claimed Charlie Sheen as a former client while working as an escort when she wasn't performing in adult movies. A Texas native, the peroxide blonde actress became a vivid girl in 2003, but she left the company not long after had accusations she was difficult to work with on set. In 2005, she died from liver failure brought on by alcohol and prescription medication abuse. In 2006, porn star Joe Doe, 43, whose real name was Chester Anuzak, was found hanging in the closet of his home where he lived with his wife and young daughter. The 20-year veteran of the porn business had killed himself. At one point during his life, when asked what his contribution to life was, he replied, nothing. It's the same with most people. We all walk around thinking we're so important. This business is no different from the real Hollywood Throughout the course of his career, he had appeared in over 1,000 adult films, including one in which he had sex with 101 women. Just goes to show that all the money and sex in the world doesn't and won't make you happy. Success is truly different to everyone, isn't it? The porn industry has always faced accusations of gleaning from preying on vulnerable... On The, vil- the porn industry has always faced accusations, accusations of... Leading from preying on vulnerable women and deceiving them into getting trapped into contracts. The apparent abhorrence towards the adult film industry and attention on their business and the lives of their actors saw a rise of the falling deaths of multiple porn stars recently. The alleged suicidal deaths of adult stars such as Dakota Sky, Dahlia Sky, and Christina Lacina's deaths made headlines in June and July of 2021. They're not the only ones. Porn star Zoe Parker, 24, died in her sleep in September 2020, just days after moving back home to start a new life. Nadia Knight was found in her home in December of 2020, and Selena Moon, who had just started her porn career in 2019, died while filming on set in May of 2021 from a drug overdose. overdose. Dakota Sky's aunt Linda said that her niece was trolled by other porn stars as well in the weeks before her death after she posed topless at a Floyd mural. Her life story and how she came to be in that industry has truly been a tragedy. Lauren was a product of a highly dysfunctional family involving drugs, alcohol, physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse. She was stalked by demons like no one will understand unless you've lived it. Dahlia Skye was discovered inside a car with a fatal gunshot wound in Los Angeles on June 30th. Her mother later revealed that Skye was homeless and was living in her car while while battling breast cancer. JHP Films owner Hans told AVN that the actress was suffering from depression due to her battle with stage 4 breast cancer. And according to pornstarsdeath.com, 20-year-old Selena Moon, who had just started her porn career in 2020 and had only been in a handful of movies, died from an accidental overdose while filming in L.A. in May 2021. According to reports, the agency that managed the actress didn't even bother to report her death to anyone. Instead, they just removed her from the website altogether. R.I.P., I guess. Former adult film actress Mia Khalifa, who retired from the business in 2015, has often spoken about the porn movie business as an industry that, you know, they prey on callow young women and behavioral and even behavioral scientist Gadzat, who studies the porn industry, said that when the camera is on, everybody's happy. The problem is that that the work dries up, the phone stops ringing, and they say, now what? Porn stars aren't the best at making a what-if plan for their future. Porn star Odette Delacroix, 28, also noted adult performers get smacked around emotionally and they get it from every angle, even within the industry. They're afraid to talk about any problems that they have because it is so competitive. If one person says, I'm depressed, they'll just use someone else. She said, I don't know if porn makes people depressed or if people who are depressed are more likely to be drawn into the industry. She also revealed that bullying both online and offline is a huge issue in the porn industry. There isn't a day in my career I haven't had abuse from someone either online or in person. When my local high school found out about my career, I was stripped of all my awards and they literally took my name off the wall, she added. I mean, yeah, if your accomplishments porn you know, that's probably not what a high school is going to want to push forward. And I have to say, as, as someone with friends in the industry and, and OnlyFans, you get hated on severely. People use this as a way to, as like a tactic to try to knock you down as if you aren't a human being and don't deserve respect because of the work that you do. It's, it's fucking atrocious, you know? Lebanese-born former porn star Mia Khalifa received death threats after filming a sex scene wearing a, a hijab. ISIS shared images of her being beheaded, hacked her Instagram, and posted a picture of her flat online. One of the biggest adult stars in the 90s, Janine appeared in several music videos and was the sexy nurse on the cover of Blink-182's 1999 album, Enema of the State. She was also married to Jesse James, who later went on to marry Sandra Bullock. Although Janine retired from porn in 1999 to try and become a a kindergarten teacher in 2004, she made her adult movie comeback. After a custody battle with Jesse for their daughter in 2008, she went to prison for unpaid taxes. In August 2021, 23-year-old porn actress Aubrey Gold was arrested in Florida under suspicion of murder, the Daily Star reported. Investigators launched the murder probe that ensnared Gold, whose non-porn name is Lauren Wambles, after they found the body of a uh, 51-year-old Raul Guillen near Graceville, and he had been shot to death. The last time anyone had reported seeing the man, Gold is suspected to have murdered was in Dalton, Alabama, which is some 30 miles from the Florida state line. In addition to porn actress Gold, Aubrey Gold, the others charged in the alleged murder include William Shane Parker, 35, and Jeremy Peters, 43. Parker has been charged with murder, and Peters with accessory to murder and corpse abuse. According to Holmes County Sheriff John Tate, That that is where the porn actress, the last time Guillen was seen was at Peters' home. According to Holmes County Sheriff John Tate, That is where the porn actress, Aubrey Gold, is believed to have orchestrated the murder, NBC7 WJHG reports. Investigators cracked the murder case and implicated porn actress, Aubrey Gold, with the help of cadaver dogs. The animals led them to an apparent gravesite where the Florida Department of Law Enforcement dug up the body. Murder suspect, Aubrey Gold, has quite the rap sheet, having been arrested six times since 2018, the year that she is last known to have filmed porn. Between 2015 and 2018, she appeared in 31 films, according to IMBD. Two years since leaving porn, Aubrey Gold is now stuck in jail under a principal-to-murder charge. Guillen most recently lived in Houston and Jackson Counties in Alabama. As for the porn actress, Aubrey Gold, in addition to her arrest for murder, she has a November trial slated for a felony drug possession charge. So, there you go. This has been a list of porn stars that have tragically lost their lives or allegedly took a life. I'm your host Ruby May. If you want to reach out to me, DM me on any social media platform. Have the day karma allows you to have. So make good choices. Quit being assholes to people. And remember, every day is a good day to be better than who you were yesterday. Okay? Okay, thanks. Bye.